This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Wonderful World of Remnant Radio. In today's program, we're talking about blessings and cursings. Once again, uh, it's promised to be a blessed episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, we've got a great program for you guys today as we're diving into this episode of Blessings and Cursings. Uh, man, a uh, little bit different of a setup here on my end. Michael Miller also has a different setup. You want to cut over there. Uh, he's hanging out there in Oklahoma. We got him out of the basement. In now, Colorado. What? In Colorado. But, don't, but do not be confused. We will still get a sign up on the wall that says Basement Boy or something to that effect that we're, we're very eager boy. of displaying. Uh, though the location has changed, the name never the will. Hold on. Let's see. Let's see his space. Okay. Yeah. Put his space up again. There it goes. Just see. Okay. Yeah. He definitely needs a sign. And I don't know, Miller. Have you ever read uh, like more than twenty books in your life before? No. This Ouch. is all I've ever read uh, is these books that just happened. Like you, Actually, I, I haven't even read these. This is all just for show. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh, <laughs> this is. Uh, He's added early. He's an audiobook guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I get that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have the physical copies just to look impressive. I actually am an audiobook guy as well. Um, well hey, guys, uh, everyone's asking if we're live because we pre-recorded like two weeks of episodes. So we could have some time off. So We're live. We are live. We can see you. And it is Ritha, good to be back live with you all today. Filman. We're going to continue our discussion on blessings and curses because our last episode called Blessings and Curses was a lie it was basically just blessings that's all we could get to because we (laughs) talk a lot but now we're calling it blessing and curses and we're just going to do curses really maybe a quick little we'll be cursing this whole time yeah (laughs) right so uh, what what do you think fellas should we summarize last episode a little bit and then dive into curses sure yeah 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 i could i could do that really quick um do you want me to yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. I wasn't wasn't quite sure. Um, so uh, last week, we just talked through some blessings and cursings. I have my notes over here to the left, so I'm, I'm reading those. Um, we just talked generally about the different kinds of uh, blessings that there are uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the way that those kind of flesh out and are engaged. Uh, the word blessing actually has a couple of different uses in uh, the scriptures. So uh, blessing can be kind of like a praise, you know, um, Blessed be God most high. You know, you you can praise God with a blessing. Uh, A blessing can be bestowed from prophets, priests, and kings uh, to the people that they're kind of assigned over. Uh, There also seems to be some kind of 
um, it's like like you see in the law of the progenitor, right? With the firstborn, the, the father, the patriarch of the family blesses the firstborn child. And, and sometimes that rule uh, is reversed or changed in the Old Testament. But it seems as if the, the fathers who have been given a kind of an authority by God have this ability to bless their sons. Uh, we kind of discussed a little bit about uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Israel doesn't seem to uh, prophesy over the 12 tribes at the end of his life, at the end of Genesis. He actually seems to give blessing and like having the authority given by God saying, hey, uh, uh, you know, Israel, you're going to be a nation. And from you, these 12 nations are coming. So he knows that he's going to be this nation. And Israel seems to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, not prophesy over them, but like give them blessing in, in which one of them would be greater than the other. He seems to bless Judah and say, from your line, a king will come. So it's a really interesting thing. It, it doesn't seem as if they could, you know, bless Judah with, you know, Judah, I, I bless you with flying to space, right? Like, he, I bless you with a Maserati. He's not like blessing him with things that he has no authority to do. It's God has given him this rulership and authority to be a king. And from him, this great nation would come. So he seems to have this delegated authority to be able to bestow on others the blessing from the dominion he was given. We use the illustration, uh, like Michael Roundtree could, um, you know, install a youth pastor over Bridgeway and he could bless him in his work as a youth pastor. He can and uh, ordain him as a youth pastor and bless his ministry because it, it's within the sphere of authority that God has given Michael Roundtree. Um, but Michael Roundtree couldn't and probably shouldn't uh, be blessing the next president of the United States. Like I, you know, I speak blessing over this person one day, they will, you know, rule Uganda, whatever, that kind of thing. Uh, unless, of course, that would be prophetically uttered through uh, through God's spirit. So that was kind of formulating a little bit about blessing. If one of you guys maybe have uh, the notes, oh, well, there's also blessings that came as a way of the covenant faithfulness. Uh, blessed is a man, right, who doesn't sit in the way uh, of sinners, right, or seat in, in the seat of scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. There seems to be a, a blessing that is accompanied through covenantal faithfulness, and then some other kind of blessing that comes by way of the gospel that is unmerited and undeserved. So, whoop, that was an accident, and that's why we've got to be yeah, careful. Yeah, you start with, talking with your hands and you start pressing start buttons on that. You start slapping my keyboard. Uh, anyway, so uh, all that to say that, that that kind of gives us a you know 30,000 foot view of what we talked about last week on the topic of blessing. We did want to distinguish what we believe to be as blessing with the uh, kind of the word of faith speaking things into existence. Uh, we don't seem to have any kind of biblical evidence in the scriptures of commanding the universe by the word of our power. That seems to be something that God alone does uh, to organize things by his divine decree. Uh, as Christians, God has given us some measure of delegated authority, and we're just kind of figuring out where the scope of that seems to be in the scriptures of speaking blessings over uh, individuals. So uh, one of you guys want to pick up on curses or maybe touch on something that I missed from the blessing conversation? Uh, sure. I, man, that was a good summary of the blessings. Go back and watch the fuller episode if you want to catch the whole thing. So uh, let's talk about curses. Okay. So we'll, just like we did with blessings, we'll break this down into different categories of curses. Probably what we're most often thinking of when somebody talks about a curse is this, uh, what we define as an utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment on someone or something. Uh, so it's uh, to curse somebody and uh, to to in, incur or invoke a curse upon someone or something like Balaam was paid to curse Israel. Of course, he only blessed them. And there's some lessons in there on blessing and cursing we might pause and talk about later, guys. But 
Um, here are a couple of examples. Um, Joshua 6, 26, it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho at the cost of his firstborn. He shall lay its foundation at the cost of his youngest son. He shall set up its gates. Uh, that is fulfilled in first Kings 16, 34, which says in his days, uh, hill of Bethel built Jericho. So the curse was Joshua after destroying Jericho says, cursed is the one who, who builds it. And these bad things are going to happen. Well, here's where they, they, the bad things happen. He laid the foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, now, one question, I'm going to read this next verse here in just a second, but you guys can start thinking about this, uh, Josh and Michael, is uh, when we say um, an utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power, are we suggesting that God or some demon is actually behind this curse? So you guys think about that. Uh, maybe with the curse of Jericho, is this like God is enforcing the curse or is it the devil? Or is it like God using the devil? All things to think about. Then First Samuel 14, 24 says, Now the men of Israel were in distress that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food before evening, before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted any food, uh, which was, a, uh, as the story plays out, was a stupid thing to say. And Jonathan doesn't know about it. And uh, Jonathan eats honey. I love the wording of it. It's like, and, and Jonathan's eyes brightened when he ate the honey. Uh, anyway, but he violated the, uh, he, he violated this curse made by uh, Saul and was supposed to die as a result, but then ends up kind of at the last second, getting rescued from that and not dying. So um, anyway, so those are a couple of verses and we could we could say more, but Miller and Josh, um, why don't we come back to my original question and then we can see where that goes. But uh, when we talk about whether in these verses that we just mentioned or in any other instance, um, when we talk about a curse being invoked, are we talking about God enforcing this curse? Are we talking about the devil enforcing the curse or some demon? Are we talking about a, a mixture of both? A little bit like, say, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. This, I mean, this isn't the same thing because it's not a curse. But you do have both God and the devil involved in this thorn in the flesh. It's called a messenger of Satan. And yet it's from the Lord in the context and the Lord actually says, no, I'm going to let you keep that. So, um, it, so could it be something like that or to use old Testament language an evil spirit from the Lord? What do you guys make of that? Miller can't hear you. You're, but... you're muted. My guy. I sneezed earlier. So I did you guys a favor by muting that. Um, thank you. So I, I, I just want you to know on the front end of this conversation, I've been trying to read every perspective on the topic. And uh, there was a guy named Patrick Rhodes who sent me this book. I have been reading it. He is on the side that believes that this is all taken care of at the cross, that there is no such thing as curses today because the cross has done it. And then Derek Prince has a book on blessing and cursing that I've about 150 pages through. Um, uh, when it comes to answering your question, Michael, uh, I personally think that it's enacted by demons or even angels. Um, like when I think about what happened to, was it Zachariah was the father of um, John the Baptist, I believe. Uh, the angel Gabriel makes him mute. 
Um, is that a curse? I don't know. It seems like that would fall under a curse because he didn't believe. And so the angel struck him mute for a time and then released him when he acts in faith later on. And so it seems like that ends up serving a, a bigger purpose. Um, although I, I think there's a lot of demonic uh, curses that are, or sorry, curses that are carried out by demonic entities that very well could be uh, of the Lord's doing or very well just could be the devil taking advantage of uh, a person's sin and or um, uh, the curse, the curse of someone, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and that's because we've got to kind of talk through categories of curses to even answer that question. At least I would think you would have to. Um, because like when I think of a curse that gets passed down because of idolatry, uh, where, where somebody invokes a curse on their line, um, is that invoke, is that curse being, uh, carried out by God or is God simply honoring the will of that person and the devil or a demon taking advantage of the curse that was made? So um, let's, let's unpack that just for a second. Let's, let's, let's create those categories because, uh, Michael, let's say there's a witch doctor kind of hanging out and they, they curse your family to the third and fourth generation. The question is, where does the origin of that curse come from? We would all say demons, right? Uh, devils do that whole cursing thing. But what about this thing with Joshua? Joshua is not invoking power from a, you know, demonic entity or demonic force. Um, is the source of this curse coming from God himself, or is the source of this cur curse um, being issued by God through the agency of Joshua, but it's actually being carried out by some kind of demonic entity? So the example that kind of Roundtree alluded to was the, the lying spirit that went forth from the throne of God to yeah. fill the mouth of the prophets with a lie. So is that possible? Yeah, I think it's totally with, well within the realm of possibility. The ultimate, uh, the, the, what, what would be important for the Christian, what would be important for Joshua is the theological framework that I'm speaking in the place of God on this issue. Uh, God can yeah. handle how he wants to do it. If it's God sending an angel, if it's God sending uh, a demon, if it's God himself just smacking someone up with the spirit of dumb, uh, you know, he could do that. He could just make someone mute. I, I think it's totally well within God's own prerogative when he speaks to Moses. You know, I make man speak. Uh, I make him mute. Uh, it seems as if God can do this on his own. He doesn't need any help from demons. But for whatever reason, uh, in times past, he has used other spiritual entities to carry out his will. So I think that's his prerogative at that point. Um, what I think is interesting about the story of Joshua, and I may be taking this to a different um, context, but like, notice that this is binding. Joshua gives a curse that is recorded, and then later on in history, it's recorded as being fulfilled. And again, this is just really interesting to me, just like the blessings we mentioned earlier, there's not prophetic language that is attached to this. It's not uh, no. the spirit of the Lord fell upon Joshua and he proclaimed, thus beeth the man who rebuilds this. It, it's not, and the word of the Lord came to Joshua. Joshua just said, God hates this city and anyone who rebuilds it is cursed. And he's just like, he just knows God's heart about the situation, speaks to it, speaks to it with a curse, and then it is fulfilled. Like that's wild. Um, I'm super uncomfortable I mean, by that. And the, like, and the well, Lord of Faith and, guys, they're kind of like, yeah, see, name it, like decree, bro, and declare, and you make things happen. So I don't think they're decreeing and declaring death, though. I don't think the Word of Faith guys were like, you know, <laughs> I decree murder. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, 
You know, I think Josh, you raise a great point about like Joshua's case specifically. He is he is very much speaking for God here. This is not some witch doctor, you know, mangling a couple of voodoo dolls and muttering curses and hexes and so on. He's not that's that's not what's happening here. In that case, I'm going to say probably a demon is enforcing that. In Joshua's case, um the Lord can use a demon to enforce whatever he wants, to your point. I I doubt that's what's happening here. My guess is that this would be a purely divine discipline and uh and the Lord striking folks down because he's enforcing this oath that Joshua spoke prophetically, albeit without actually saying, Thus says the Lord. That would be my take on the Joshua one. Michael, I, I want to know about this curse though. Do you do you was it like a uh, an act of defiance for this guy to rebuild that city? Was he like, hey, forget you guys. I don't care about this freaking curse. I'm going to build it anyway. Or was it something out of ignorance? Because like that's, that's super interesting to me too. Like Jonathan does, eats the honey out of ignorance. And I think you can make the argument that he isn't put to death, but him and his dad die. And I don't read the New Testament, I don't read the Old Testament passage of Jonathan eating the honey as it not being fulfilled, but the curse that Saul placed on the honey was fulfilled. And that's why Jonathan and his father died rather than just Saul dying for going to the witch of Endor. Um, anyway, those are just kind of my uh, thoughts. Like it yeah. seems fulfilled. Okay. So I went I back and, and checked and looked up first King 16 while you were talking. There's not a lot of context to tell us. Um, but there are a couple of things. First, um, like starting in verse 29, it talks about the reign of King Ahab and he's really, really evil. And as it goes in Israel, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the nation. And and so just after it says Ahab did all this bad stuff, then it just says in his days, this random dude, never mentioned in the context, uh, built Jericho and it fulfilled the word of the Lord. So <clears throat> contextually, uh, it, it looks like, and this is a quick look there. I don't think Hill is mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the guy who rebuilt Jericho, uh, I think this is the only reference I could look that up quick, but it doesn't matter. Um, the, contextually, it looks like the author of first Kings is simply trying to say Ahab was really evil and Jericho, the city that was never able to be, that was never to be rebuilt. Uh, actually was rebuilt under Ahab's reign. That's another strike against Ahab. Ahab should have, I think implicitly Ahab should have stepped in the way of that. Um, probably there's an Im implication there, but it is definitely saying this happened uh, during Ahab's reign and characterized his reign negatively. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about this, Josh, is notice, and Miller, notice in verse 34, the guy rebuilds Jericho at the cost of his firstborn and youngest son. And then it says this, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua. So according mm. to the word of the Lord. So he doesn't so say he... thus as the Lord, mm -hmm. but he simply proclaims an oath. But the author of first Kings is saying he was prophesying. He was speaking yeah. the word of the Lord. That's good. That's, that's a good, that's a good interpretive lens. I think for the believer, 
Um, because that's one of the areas that I, as we're going through this process of trying to figure out blessings and cursings, you know, me and Miller were talking about this earlier. This feels like kind of early days remnant radio where we were, there's this theological topic we definitely have studied. We've definitely read up on, but, but it's just one of those things that we're just kind of undecided on that. That's actually one of these is one of these moments where it's like, ah, well, I feel like we've kind of stumbled upon another nugget. Like that looks like prophecy. Now that doesn't look like just speaking a blessing or just speaking a curse. So I actually think that's, that's a super helpful uh, tidbit there. So what do you do with other things though? Like, um, okay. So you've got, uh, Peter denying the Lord and on the third denial, he invokes a curse and it does seem like Jesus kind of meets him in that place, uh, in John 21, when he tells him to feed a sheep. Um, it's, it's almost as if he's, he's trying to break the curse that Peter had invoked on himself in that moment. And so there's like this, this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, unintentional way of invoking, or like unintentional way of bringing on a curse. And part of the way that the person gets freed is uh, by reaffirming the truth. And, and guys, I, again, this is us kind of processing out loud, but man, I've just experienced some of this stuff. Um, like I think about uh, a guy I prayed with back in October, uh, a really good friend. Um, you know, I think he was demonized and I wanted to pray for him. And so I start diving into some of the things that he, he deals with. And one of the things that he tells me, um, was that he's always felt like he was dumb. And, and so I'm going, okay, when was the first time you can remember feeling this way? And he recalls being a second grader and being pulled out of class because he needed some extra help. And I think the teacher might have said something that was sort of insulting and, and made him feel less than and made him feel stupid. And I said, so ever since then, you just felt like you were dumber than others. Said, would that be accurate? He goes, yeah. And so I walked him through a breaking of a curse and a, a renunciation of this lie that he's dumb. And then when I commanded a dumb spirit to come out of him, it was like full-blown manifestation as this thing left his body and he... he darn near passed out afterwards. Um, but I mean, that seems like a rather unintentional thing that happened because of what a teacher said to this person. What do yeah. you guys make of that kind of stuff? And again, I'm not, I'm not taking a hard stance on, I, I don't even know understand what took place. Like I really don't get it. I just know that that's what happened. So, I mean, scripture is going to speak to some of these We are things. touching on like how much does experience play into biblical interpretation. And I here here's what I would say to that. I mean, we always want I'm not scripture. trying to interpret scriptures through my experience. I really right. am trying to say what does the scriptures have to say about my experience? Where, where does this fall? And uh but you know, take Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul is converted because of an experience and it changes how he viewed every passage about the Messiah. It was pointing to Jesus. I, I don't think responsible exegesis has to be 100% divorced from experience. Uh, I, I mean, if if you see a demon cast out or if you see, a you know, blind eyes opened or, you know, those kind of things and you had previously been a cessationist and it causes you to rethink. Now, you still have to practice responsible exegesis, but you can experience things that cause you to to think again about false assumptions you might have made. And I think that's fair, dude. And I think your experience, I would affirm it. It's definitely not unbiblical. 
uh, or anti-biblical, I think that it aligns with the scripture. It definitely aligns with my experience too. I've seen the same thing. Um, and I, I also want to say something about uh, the scriptures you were quoting about Peter, because I, I think that's fascinating. Peter denies the Lord three times, and at the end of that, calls down curses upon himself. So can uh-huh. a believer be cursed? You know, in this place, he's literally uttering, calling down curses. Um, and Miller, you're right to identify in John 21, Jesus, seemed, he's reversing this when he's restoring Peter to ministry. Uh, but he says three times some variation of feed my sheep or tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Uh, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And and so there's this in, intentional parallel, three denials, uh, but then three questions. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And this is uh, this is Jesus's way of communicating. I am restoring you into ministry. And um, every interpreter understands it that way. That's that's what's happening. So there is a very direct connection. Now, here's a connection on, on curses that I think is fascinating on that, because there's a big debate over like, and, and you talked about this, Miller, when you held up a couple of books, there's a big debate over, am I automatically, like every curse is removed from me automatically and I'm protected from any curse anyone would ever utter because I'm in the new covenant. I am in the new covenant. It's impossible for me to be cursed. Is that true? Okay. Well, in defense of that, let me finish in defense of that. There would be, uh, Proverbs 26, two, like a sparrow in it's flitting, like a swallow in it's flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Some would say, well, Hey, Christ bore the curse, whatever. Now it's a causeless thing. Like it, it can't come on us. Another one, it's Old Testament, but applied New Testament would be the people who were under the covenant were called blessed. You couldn't curse them. Same thing for New Covenant people. It's automatic, okay? But then the story with Peter could be a case for, hey, you actually have to apply that. Peter had to actually be restored, and it was in the process of that restoration that uh, that he applied the New Covenant work of Jesus to remove the curse and experience the blessing. So in the same way, hey, yes, we're under the new covenant, but if somebody utters a curse, like I have to apply the work of the new covenant through faith and repentance and other things lived out on a day-by-day basis. So those are two sides of the argument that I think this touches on. Josh, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that uh, just to flesh out the first side of the argument, it seems as if the curse that people are saying, hey, in the new covenant, Christ became a curse for us. So like the curse of the law terminates on, on, on Jesus. So like, if you go to the old Testament and it says, Hey, you know, if you worship other gods, like I'm going to curse you, who's cursing them? God, God is cursing them. Well, it seems as if those curses, the, the Deuteronomic, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this very academic word, Deuteronomic, thank you, curses that are going specifically to the children of Israel, specifically for breaking these covenants, that the that, that God was placing out curses on them for doing that. He's saying, when you place your faith in Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, fulfills and absorbs those curses, uh, and all the curses of the law are terminated on Christ. So those who hold that first position aren't just saying... Um, there used to be curses in the Old Testament. Now there's not in the New Testament. Um, but they're saying specifically the curses that God was placing upon Israel terminate on Jesus. There are other curses. I think that they would make the case that, 
or at least potentially, that there can be kind of demonic activity. There could be, you know, witches and sorcerers and those kinds of things that are still trying to place curses on children and the people of God. But that's not necessarily the curse of the law. That would be a very specific context of God placing. So it makes no sense for God to, the, the blessing that comes in Christ Jesus then seems to kind of terminate the curses that were placed in that uh, Deuteron- Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, whatever, screw it. I'm not even yeah. going to get close to it. So uh, Let me, I'm going to push back on this, Josh. Go ahead. So, and, it, and I'm not pushing back because I have a, you know, I, I'm, I've concluded this. This is me just processing out loud, playing the devil's advocate. But okay, so the, the, the main argument is that Jesus has already been cursed so that the curses of the law no longer apply to those who have placed their faith on in Christ. And so I, I would just say, is it possible that yes, Jesus had paid for all of that, but our experience of all that Christ paid for when he was cursed on that tree is subsequently being uh, experienced through our ongoing sanctification and uh, one day in, in its fullness in the resurrection. So, because here's the thing that gets me, I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy, right? You guys are both Gentiles. You know, you have been grafted into the faith. And as you've been grafted in, you're now recipients of the blessings that came uh, to the Jewish people. Now, if the if you're a recipient of their blessings, why couldn't you also be a recipient of their cursings? And then, furthermore, uh, all that Christ paid for, obviously, we're not experiencing it on this side of the resurrection. Like right? we're we're waiting to experience the fullness of that to the other side. Uh, in the same way, like. Um, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, I'd also say he paid for our sins and, and didn't just you know, become a curse for the Deuteronomic curses, but he also became a curse for the, the curse of the fall itself, that he, his death on the cross was payment for that. And yet, every child we have is born a sinner. Um, they're still suffering under the weight of being a sinner and still in need of uh, a, a of the saving uh, and atoning work of Christ. And yet we also find that there's so many other things that we don't have um, in the same degree that they had in the garden because we're still experiencing the curses of the fall. Um, yeah. I, I wanna, what do you want to do with I, all that? I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to take the position of, of position one. Okay. And, and it's not to say that I have a fully developed position or that I am a hundred percent convinced same page. about You're it. We're just talking out loud here. We're unconvinced, but I'm going to lean on this side for the sake of discussion. And also it's more comfortable for me. So I'm going to say <laughs> that the, the, the curses of the law of the law that God says, I'm placing this on you for disobedience, those curses that God is actively placing on people, that those are, are terminated in Christ. Um, God is not blessing and cursing us. He is giving us blessings in Christ Jesus and the blessings then kind of um, reverse the curse, if you will. So the the fall, I would not say, uh, is the same because that's there is this kind of general curse placed of over all of general creation, and the scriptures point that those curses will be completely done away with in the new creation. Right now, these other curses, the curses of the law, terminate on Jesus on the cross. So um, it, it, it seems as if there are um, biblical categories uh, for these kinds of original Adamic curses. And then there seems to be another category of mosaic curses. And those mosaic curses seem to terminate in Christ. And they will be fully 
you know, uh, the, the, the Adamic ones, when the new heavens and the new earth are established, those are renewed as well. So I'm only, I'm only fleshing this out again, unconvinced that this is the actual position. Uh, but like I'm, I'm reading, you know, as, as people do for the new year, uh, Bible reading plans. And in the Bible reading plan that I have, there's a story of, uh, Abraham going to Abimelech's house, right? And he goes and Abimelech's like, Hey, your wife's cute. And he's like, ah, it's not my wife. It's my sister. Right? So he takes, uh, Sarah into his house and he doesn't do nothing. Doesn't do nothing. Right. And then God's like, you're a dead man in a dream. And Abimelech's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know. I didn't know. And he goes, I know you didn't know. That's why I'm warning you now. And he goes, well, I'm I'm not going to do nothing. Abraham, take your sister back or sister wife, whatever this is. Take her back. I don't want her no more. Right. And, And then he goes, and then he goes, uh, and then Abraham prayed blessing over Abimelech because God had closed the wombs of the people in Abimelech's house. Abimelech didn't do nothing. Like he didn't even, he didn't even like look sideways at Sarah. He just said, Hey, like this is, th- this is a great lady. She's single. I'm going to marry her. I'm going to snatch her up. And God placed a curse over his whole household. How is that cursed reversed? It's reversed through a blessing. Abraham speaks blessing over the family and it reverses that curse. And, and I think that that's what we're seeing that in Christ Jesus, we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. Like, I think that there is a reversal of the curses of God in Levitical covenant system and, and in Christ has poured out blessing and, and I think uh, nullified those curses in the same way that I think Abraham does with Abimelech. I, I think it's, it's good that you are differentiating between curses because I think we're maybe a little bit, we're talking about multiple kinds of cursings here. And one is that like supernatural inflicted kind of curse, like a man utters something over another man or another group of people. That's one kind of curse. Like Joshua pronounces, it's the word of the Lord. He's calling, a, a but it is really a curse on the person, uh, person's family who rebuilds Jericho. Um, but then to describe like the curses of say Deuteronomy chapter 27, which this is in our, uh, our handout here, our study guide. So a divine judgment placed upon a sinful man or a sinful person or sinful actions to inflict harm, punishment, misfortune, uh, et cetera. And that's where Moses says in Deuteronomy 27, uh, he charged the people saying, when you've crossed over the Jordan, there shall stand on Mount uh, Gerasim to bless the people. Anyway, well, I, should have started a little bit lower, but curse be anyone who dishonors his father and mother and all the people say, amen. And curse be the one who moves his neighbor's landmark and all the people say, amen, etc. And so curse, curse, curse. So Deuteronomy 27 and 28, it's like, cursed are you if you do these bad things, blessed are you if you do these good things. And um, I think that's very different than a pronouncement of, uh, of one person, whether that be a godly person like Joshua, whether that be a witch doctor, uh, you know, cursing some rando those are two different things than the curse that is uh that in bible days was incurred for breaking law of moses and so um and of course we can talk about adamic curse as uh cursings as well both of those speak of uh curse for breaking a law there's some differences but and similarities i don't think we have time to get into that but anyway i think it's right for us to differentiate between those two is really what i'm saying so i'm I am with Josh on that. Miller, the part on, on what you said that I agreed with was where you were talking about. So like, I, I believe that like in the new covenant, we have, we are just as Israel was when Balaam tried to curse them and couldn't, I believe we are the blessed people of God. And I do believe that 
provides protection. So like if a group of witches is like, I'm going to, you know, curse Michael Roundtree or Michael Miller or whomever, I don't think a group of witches can just like up and curse anybody and that it is automatically going to be fulfilled no matter what. I don't think that's true. What about uh, that think, dude who sacrificed his son on the wall? Uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, like uh, the argument, the argument is like a curse without a cause can't land, or or hey, just because they have demon power doesn't mean they can wrath. affect you. But a great yeah. wrath got stirred up, and like God was with the children of Israel. God was like, "I'm gonna lead Moabites. you." But the Moabites did something nasty. They got that yeah. mad juju, and they started sacrificing <laughs> kids, and and stuff happened. Well, well, man, you know, I can, the Moabites I got some stories. also, the Moabites kind of went step two and began to entice Israel through sexual immorality. And that is actually how they ended up getting at them is by getting them to break their covenant with God. And, um, and therefore Israel experienced the cursings of Deuteronomy, um, different from the curses that Balaam was trying to pronounce, but they did experience the curse of disobedience and, Josh, to your point on the Proverbs 26.2 about the curse without cause will not alight. I would say that if somebody, if a new covenant believer, let's say they're, they're walking in some kind of sin, um, or to use an Ephesians 6 uh, analogy, they have a hole in their armor. They lack the hope of the helmet of their salvation. Maybe they're just walking in despair and not hope. They lack the breastplate of righteousness. They're walking in some kind of sin. They lack the the belt of truth. They're they're not being truthful or sincere or whatever. We can go through the whole armor of God. Like I think that there there is like this sense of like it's God's armor. He gives us the protection, the blessed protection of God. At the same time, I'm I would be with Miller that if I'm not putting on the armor, I make myself susceptible uh, to any kind of curse that somebody wants to throw my way to all the darts, the fiery darts of the evil one, whether he wants to use some witch doctor pronouncing something over me or whether Satan just wants to do his thing, uh, of any kind of harm. If I'm not, if I'm wearing my armor, I'm protected in my opinion. I want to believe if that I'm too. I'm not wearing my armor. I think I'm not protected. I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that. But let me ask just a kind of follow-up question. Let's say Michael Roundtree, your great, great grandpappy, was in the Freemasons and he dedicated you and your dad and you and your sons to this false god Jebulon. And you were all sworn in and oathed in. Now, as far as you're aware, you've got no unbesetting sin. You've got no um, uh, immorality in your life uh, in any way. Are you saying that that curse cannot affect you in any way just because you're, as far as you know, walking in faithfulness unto the Lord. And and you're not claiming sinless yeah. perfection because we don't believe that, right? You're, you're just saying that you're not constantly making room for the devil. Because we've met people that have illnesses, we've, you know, sicknesses, you know, they have, uh, you know, so let deep... So let me push on this. Yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Um, I, did, I, did you have more to I mean, in, 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 in the general scheme of it I, is to I mean, say I that there are people who are like that, deeply sick that... Yeah. So uh, 
I, I've told stories of this. I've, I've cast demons out of guys whose grandparents were in the Freemasons. This person himself was never in, involved. And, and a demon came out of him because of the curse that was invoked by his grandfather. So the question that I actually think what Michael says is still applying, though. At some point in life, when does that curse become active? When does the evil spirit get in because of that curse? Well, probably because of sin. So at some point, the armor of God was not fully employed, and that's when that thing became active. Um, I don't just think, I mean, I actually... But we don't believe back. in sinless perfectionalism. If that's the case, then there's never a moment. So as much as we want to say, hey, we're safe as long as we're wearing the armor of God, because we don't believe in sinless perfectionism, it sounds like you're not really safe, because at some point in time, you're going to slip. You're going to do something that's not the perfect standard of faithfulness unto God, right? Like, and is there opportunity to get demonized because of those things? Yes. Sure. Uh, here's what Clint Arnold says about that. This is in his book. I think it's called Leg. Crucial Questions about uh, Spiritual Warfare. Yeah. Uh, what's up, Josh? You trying to... Oh, something? I was saying lay it on me. Yeah, come on. Let's go. Oh, lay it on you. Here, here it is. It's my Pentecostal um, amen. Sorry. Okay. Um, virtually, he says, virtually every practitioner of contemporary deliverance ministry speaks of the reality of intergenerational or familial spirits. Uh, the con uh, By the way, Clint Arnold... Uh, well-renowned scholar. We saw him at ETS. I saw him two years ago. I didn't go this last year. Um, so it, this is a scholar. This is not just some like hack saying stuff. Okay. He says, this concept finds no direct biblical support in spite of the appeals to the Old Testament texts that speak of the sins of the fathers being visited on the descendants up to the third and fourth generations. These verses speak of guilt and consequential punishment, not about familial spirits passed on to the third and fourth generations. So, so far, it sounds like he's saying spirits can't be cast down. But then he says this, nevertheless, the concept of intergenerational spirits may receive indirect biblical support in a couple of other ways. First, in his ministry to the severely demonized boy, Jesus finds out from the father that his son had been in that awful condition, quote, from childhood, Mark 9, 21. The demonization was therefore not the result of the boy's own sin or his choices to give his allegiance to false gods. The spirits were passed on to him from some other source, the most likely of which would be his family. Second, children tend to act out in many of the same sinful patterns of behavior their parents are engaged in. Thus, when we read in the historical books of the Old Testament, we find the kings of Israel typically following in the evil steps of their ancestors. The biblical writer often asserts in the narrative line uh, such something like, he committed all the sins his father had done before him. These tendencies may not only be genetic and environmental, but may also have a spiritual root. This is a particularly apparent when we investigate the allegiances to other gods that the kings of Israel repeatedly gave themselves to. Okay, so he, he says, you can't support... You, you, let, me, let me say it like this. You, you cannot prove from the scripture that there are intergenerational spirits passed down. But he seems to believe that there are intergenerational spirits, and he provides two arguments for biblical support, although he admits they are not like hook, line, and sinker arguments. The first one being Mark 9.21, Jesus asks, how long has this been going on? And he says, from childhood. So he's had this spirit causing epilepsy since childhood. Uh, and his point is, we can probably infer that 
he didn't gain this spirit because of some egregious sin in his life. He's had it for since childhood. He says the most likely place would be intergenerational. And then secondly, he quotes people. He says, basically, family lines tend to repeat certain sins, and this could be a spiritual cause. Uh, what do you guys think of those arguments? I, I give you another one. Not convincing. Yeah, well, think of uh, John 9. The disciples come up to a guy who's born blind. They ask the Lord, was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? So in this case, it was neither. But the fact is, why are they asking that question at all? Where did that belief come from? If not from their own experience of being with the Lord and saying that somebody could be in a condition that they're in because of the sins of their parents. Um, it seems like a, that that's why they believe that. That's why they're even asking that question is they're trying to help this blind man get free. Um, and Jesus, in this case, he's like, hey, it, not everything comes down to the, some sin that this person committed or their, their parents. And it's interesting because the guy was born blind, right? So the, the, the implication is that a person could be born a certain way because of the sins of an ancestor. Um, and then experience, experientially, anecdotally, um, man, I'm telling you, I was in Costa Rica praying with people whose parents took them on a pilgrimage when they were born as infants up to La Negrita, the Black Mary. And there they would ask for a blessing from this idol. And these children end up being severely demonized. And we had to actually pray uh, for them to get set free from the curse that they had actually invoked unknowingly um, and because of idolatry. But that is a little different because even if that's true, and I don't doubt that it is, that's not that they were born with it. That is their parents in their childhood did some idolatrous act that that involved the children. That's a little different from grandpappy sinned, and that, so I have a demon. Well, I gave the other example earlier of the guy in my church who whose grandfather was in the Masonic Lodge, and so that would be one. This was before he he was born. Uh, he himself had never participated in that kind of idolatry. So I don't know. Well, but this is still kind of getting me to the, I want to go back to the original one and, and maybe I'll toss it to Roundtree because I need a sparring partner on this. I, again, not haven't made my, yeah, my I mind. It. I just, I just need to push back on it because if the idea is like, Hey, no matter what, if you're wearing the armor of God, nothing can attack you. You're safe. But then which one of us is righteous enough to, maintain the armor of god right like which one of us like are we just talking about generally as long as you're like generally okay you're wearing the armor of god or do we mean that like a stray thought do we mean like can it be literally any chink um because at that point what's the point of even arguing that the army of god is going to protect us well it's certainly going to protect you more than those who don't wear it so i mean that that seems like a it's not a guarantee that you're going to remain free from every sin Right or from everything that could happen to you, right? It certainly, it certainly does provide protection. Otherwise, why would Paul mention it? Sure. Well, I'm I'm arguing that it does provide protection, but the the argumentation is that well, as long as you know, curse without a cause can't land. So as long as you're walking in Christ's righteousness, and I'm assuming that we're talking about Coram Deo or Coram Mundo, not Coram Deo. Like we're assuming yeah, that we're right. talking about Coram our righteousness Mundo. here on the on the earth, because we're as righteous before God as we'll ever be. So like when we're talking about the armor of God, to me that looks like things that are. Anyway, that, it's neither here nor there on what the armor of God is. I just, I just want to hear Roundtree engage with it. Oh, I was yeah. looking for the verse where it says of Jesus that the devil, where he says to his disciples, 
the devil has no hold has no hold on me yeah. yeah only jesus can say that to your point none of us wears the armor of god perfectly all day every day um i do think we have to be careful in this discussion because i think for some christians um like when i hear when i watch the movie uh, come out in jesus name this was one of my criticisms of it was uh one of the guys says something like if you have an addiction you have a demon if you have this you have a demon and he's he's making these blanket statements that i just don't think you can say as a blanket statement now, i know how they're arriving there they're saying okay addiction you gave yourself over to the devil or to idolatry and therefore the devil gets a grip and therefore you know i i know how they arrive there but uh if we start talking in those kinds of ways the way a lot of deliverance ministries talk is people it's like they're not actually demonized, but they're terrified of being demonized, and that itself is torment. Well, and that I think itself we is to failing to put on the armor of God. Well, what I was going to say is I think we have to think theologically about this, and like, my father is good, and if I ask him, am I demonized, or is there a curse on my life? You know, if I ask him these questions, my good father will show me this. I mean, David has something kind of similar in 2 Samuel 23. It's not demonization, but it is a curse that's generational in nature. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, why is there a famine in the Lord? David inquires the Lord, and he has a good father who tells him. In the same way, that if you have any curiosity, like, is, is there anything wrong like in my life or whatever, just ask the Lord. He's so good, he'll tell you. And he tells David, well, here's why there's a famine. There's a famine in the land because Saul broke his oath to the Gibeonites. Wasn't supposed to kill him, killed him anyway. And so David says, okay, calls the Gibeonites up. It's a really weird story. In short, <laughs> he makes atonement. He kind of uh, makes it up to the Gibeonites, uh, lets them kill some of Saul's sons. Kind of a weird, weird way, weird story. Definitely, <laughs> whatever. Uh, it is what it is. Point being, there was something that David had to do to recompense the situation that involved, there's famine on the land in David's day, and David wasn't even the one who did the thing. He wasn't even the one who broke the, the oath with the Gibeonites. Saul was the one who did it. And yet David and his whole kingdom are the ones who suffered. And so David responded. So I would just say, if you're in doubt, just ask the Lord. Just ask the Lord. I mean, we can quibble and, and we can go back and forth and have an honest no, discussion. No, that's right. We just have a good father. Just ask the Lord. That's right. And he's not going to let you live in torment for weeks and months and years over, am I demonized? Do I have a curse? Listen, you have things wrong in your life and I have things wrong in my life. We all do. Doesn't mean it's a demon. Doesn't mean it's a curse. And I just don't want you guys to live under the curse of feeling it. That's metaphorical curse of thinking you're under a literal curse all the time because, you know, it's hard to make enough money or because, you know what, like sometimes those things, I, I don't know. I just think you ask the Lord. I think you just ask the Lord. That's my thought. Yeah. So I, I think that let's, let's get some common ground here. So let, let me, I, let me offer another encouragement we have, on that real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just cause I think it'll help Michael's point. Um, Here's the thing, like people, when you start teaching on demonization and how demons get inside people, then all of a sudden people start freaking out. Oh no, could I have a demon? And, and the, the fact is, if you haven't known that you've had a demon all this time and suddenly you're aware of the, the idea that maybe you could have one and you've been fine all that time, what does knowing about it suddenly 
create? Why does that suddenly create a difference? In the same way, what does knowing that a curse could be a possibility, how does that create a difference if you've been living this way your entire life? Um, and so I think, I think the other part of it is there's, there's also this idea that um, outwardly we're wasting away, right? That's what Paul says. Um, that's going to be true regardless of whether you've got a curse or whether you've got a demon. This thing is wasting away. Do I spend my entire life afraid about the fact that I'm wasting away, that I'm getting grayer and I'm getting older and my back hurts now and I'm not you know, moving as fast as I used to and my recovery time isn't like it used to be? Um, this is all just sort of normal life. And I would say one should invoke any more fear or anxiety than what you've been previously experiencing before you ever knew these things. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. So we, we've been all over the place talking about like different categories. Okay. So it, I think it'd be nice to kind of like put a bow on some of this for people who are listening and tuning in. Cause I know at, right at five o'clock, I've got to be in a live Q and a for on Patreon. So, um, walking through this kind of succinctly, we've talked about a curse in Adam. I'm going to argue that that is a, a, a specific kind of corruption of human nature, that that curse is unique. I'm going to then make the case that there is this other kind of curse that comes through the Mosaic law, that when you break the Mosaic law, God himself bestows curses on the children of Israel. Jesus takes those curses upon himself. Now, are there other kinds of demonic curses that can be issued against the people of God by spiritual uh, entities, demonic spirits by way of necromancers and sorcerers and witches and whatever? Um, is that a possibility? I'm arguing that, yeah, probably. It's probably possible that this can happen. Um, in fact, it seems as if that's why we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but spiritual powers and principalities and rulers of darkness. It seems to be the reason why we need the armor of God to engage and push back and fight against these other kinds of spiritual things that are taking place in spiritual places. However, to make things very succinct and clear for people, as far as my my position, and I think no matter how we categorize these things, because Michael and Michael might disagree with some of those categories, but what we will all agree on is the solution. And, and the solution is faith, repentance, and the proclamation of the gospel, right? So we would want to lead someone in repentance for any kind of sin that they had committed. And, and potentially, um, depending on wh where you're falling on some of these categories, uh, the kinds of sins that have been committed by their their ancestors. You know, I, I denounce any kind of curse spoken over me by grandpa who said that he you know, pledged me to Jebulon or whatever. Like we're going to denounce those kinds of curses. We're going to repent of those sins. And then we're going to place our faith in Jesus. And the same goes to spiritual warfare, engaging in different regions. We're not going to like uh, command spirits in, in regional spirits of witchcraft to do X, Y, and Z. What we're going to do is we're going to go bring the gospel to those places and in those in dark spaces. We're going to proclaim a message of faith and repentance and trust in Jesus. So ultimately, no matter what category you have on, on whether the Deuteronomy curses are applicable for New Testament believers who break uh, certain covenantal uh, you know, uh, guidelines and commandments, uh, even if those are, are applicable for you today, no matter what, the answer and the application for all all of these things is exactly the same. Repent and believe in Jesus. Um, would you guys agree with the solutions of those things, even if not the categories of those things? Yeah, I, I like it. I think even as, as we're talking about, we seem to camp out a lot on the generational thing. Um, Jeremiah 31, the famous passage about the new covenant quoted in Hebrews chapter eight, uh, you know, it, it says, 
it's the famous verse that says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day, you know, I took them out of Egypt, et cetera, but which they broke. I'm going to make a better covenant with them. So there's a whole new covenant promise quoted in the New Testament. But you know what comes right before it? Verse 29 and 30, it says, in those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Then behold, the days are coming, the, declares the Lord. So uh, he seems to be saying over and against this sort of generational pass down of baggage, uh, he seems to be saying the new covenant is the solution to that. He actually is very directly saying that. Now, that doesn't fully resolve the b debate because both sides actually affirm that. One side says the new covenant automatically trumps the generational baggage. As soon as I am in Christ, all the old gunk goes away. Ain't no generational spirit. Ain't no generational curse, etc. It's automatic. Christ bore it all. I'm the blessed people of God. Praise God. All right. That's one side. But the other side says, well, I agree with you that the new covenant is God's solution to it. But I have to apply it to Josh's point through faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. And if you do believe that generational spirits can be passed down uh, or any sort of spirit associated with a curse, commanding a spirit associated with that curse to go, such as in the stories Miller told, personally, I would fall on that side. I think you have to apply it. I think that a new covenant believer who doesn't walk in faith repentance isn't isn't putting on the armor of God, subjects themselves to all kinds of curses and consequences for their sin. And uh, and so I would say, yeah, put on the new covenant, like walk in the new covenant every day through faith and repentance and obedience and all those things. And uh, where necessary, command demons to go. That's what I would say. Miller, what about you? Yeah, I again, I want to thank you, um, Patrick Rhodes for sending out your your book, The Deliverance Delusion. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to end up agreeing with you, but I actually really appreciate the the, the gesture and the work that you've put into to the topic and adding to the conversation. Um, I, I would I probably where am where Michael Roundtree is, um, and I think a lot of it is here's as best as I understand Scripture, and then I have all this experience that kind of compounds that. Um, but here's what Derek Prince says for those who feel like they may have come under a curse. Uh, he says, you repent, you revoke, you replace. First, we must acknowledge that we've made a wrong uh, confession and repent of it. Second, we must revoke it. That is, we must unsay or cancel whatever we have said was wrong. Third, we must replace our previous wrong confession with the right one. These three steps taken in faith can release us from the snare. Um, I, I, I'm interested to... Put that into practice and just see what happens. Um, it might help me gain some more anecdotal evidence to support the conclusions I've, I've sort of leaned towards uh, for some time. So that's it. Okay. Fantastic, guys. I have got to get to a Patreon video. If you don't support on Patreon, go check out the links in the description, jump on the newsletter, and you can check out the Patreon video that we're about to film. And if you are a Patreon member, go jump over there right now as we're going to enjoy a uh, live discussion Q&A. So jump over there. It'll be a lot of fun. And then for the rest of you who are out there watching, make sure to subscribe, like this video. We're going to be coming out with some more 2024 Prophecy Review videos here pretty soon. Uh, we're also going to be coming out with a video maybe in a couple of weeks, probably two weeks, maybe three weeks on being slain in the spirit. A lot of really great content coming down. So if you're interested in charismatic theology, charismatic practices and experiences, theology, history, that kind of stuff, 
subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the newsletter. It's the best way to stay in contact. We'll see you guys next time. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.